Hey there, I'm Stephanie Domet. I'm an editor at Mindful Magazine and a writer and podcast producer for Mindful.org. This is a special edition of the Point of View podcast, featuring Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org editor-in-chief Barry Boyce in conversation with Rhonda McGee, Ram Mahalingam, and Mirabai Bush. Mirabai Bush is the co-founder of the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society, which seeks to transform higher education through the introduction of contemplative practices and perspectives. Mirabai has worked at the interface of mindfulness and social justice since she learned contemplative practices in India in the 1970s. Ram Mahalingam is a professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He's the director for the Mindful Connections Lab. His current research is on mindfulness and dignity in hospital settings and in the cleaning industry with a specific focus on janitors in India, South Korea, United States, and Japan. He teaches an undergraduate course on mindful leadership and a course on mindfulness and engaged living. And Rhonda McGee is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco, also trained in sociology and mindfulness-based stress reduction, Rhonda is a highly practiced facilitator of trauma-sensitive restorative mindfulness interventions for lawyers and law students and for minimizing the effects of social identity-based bias. McGee has been a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society and a visiting professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. And she is the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, published by Penguin Random House. So we convened this panel to talk about issues that arise out of racial justice, including a discussion of concepts around privilege and fragility two ideas that are also examined in the October issue of Mindful Magazine. It may be both unfortunate and fortunate that racism is so much in the news these days. It's a hot topic in homes, campuses, offices, and the media across North America and around the world. Unfortunate, of course, because we're seeing a reigniting and reemergence of hate speech and incitement to act harmfully, even violently. Fortunate, perhaps, because we may be uncovering deeper forms of division that we can explore in the ultimate interest of finding unity, interconnection, peace, and justice. Now, when we talk about racial literacy and understanding implicit bias, we get one kind of reaction. But things can get more pointed when we talk about white privilege, white supremacy, and so on. It's maybe the power and danger of calling it out. The power perhaps comes from truth-telling and the danger from labeling someone as being on one side of a divide. And it's a place where fragility can emerge. Barry, Rhonda, Ram, and Mirabai connected recently to begin unpacking some of these ideas and the role that mindfulness can play. Well, hello to all three of you. Thank you for being part of this conversation. We're talking to three of you today because you all have experience with both contemplative practice and equity issues. And I think that's where we can make a real offering. Leaders look to mindful for encouragement and seeing and manifesting a feeling of interconnectedness, that we're all one in some fundamental way, and that we need to be truthful about pointing out inequities and the harm resulting from bias. And we need to learn from that, go on some kind of a journey. 
So today, let's explore whether contemplative approaches have anything to offer. As Ron has suggested, quote, keep the door open while not sidestepping the truth, which I think is a great formulation. So in a few minutes, we'll inevitably dive into all the hot terminology, privilege, whiteness, supremacy, fragility, colorblindness, etc. But first, I'd like to hear from each of you about whether and how you see contemplative practice and contemplative approaches to dialogue aiding us as we navigate social justice issues. So uh, perhaps we can start with Rhonda and um, take it away, Rhonda. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much, Barry. Uh, so I think contemplative uh, approaches can assist us in so many ways um, when we think about having conversations about these issues. I mean, as we all know, at a, at a sort of fundamental level, uh, contemplative approaches of a wide variety uh, really help us with becoming more present and more aware to um, maybe the, both the obvious and the less obvious uh, aspects of, of our experiences you know, in the world. And so um, everything from mindfulness practices, what I often refer to as embodied mindfulness practices, right? So practices that help us um, become more aware of what's going on within us as we are entering into these, um, you know, often choppy waters um, so that we can notice when um, reactivity is about to, to is rising, um, and be more able to uh, respond rather than react automatically to the various stimuli that come up in these conversations. So, so just the basic mindfulness practice can assist us in that very simple way. But I think um, compassion practices as well, those practices that enable us to put ourselves in the shoes of other people more profoundly and more pervasively, and as a kind of a regular stance to sort of um, be more able to be flexible uh, in our, again, hearing and listening to each other and in choosing just how to respond. And so finally, in addition to having this sort of compassionate awareness, um, the grounding in the body that sort of um, many of the trauma sensitive or many of the more um, body uh, focused mindfulness practices get us um, really thinking about this as again a regular practice where we are you know not just noticing the breath um, but we're really feeling the interconnection between the breathing body and the ground beneath us um, we're really feeling the way in which uh, we are uh, again uh, supported by uh, uh, a way of being uh, consciously aware of our connectedness, the connectedness that extends from our body into the environment around us. And so all of these different ways can help us with um, the reactions, the triggerings, um, the fragility responses that can come up in these conversations. Thanks. Ron, would you like to um, comment on that? Comment? Thanks, Barry. Um, Thanks, Veranda, uh, for starting the conversation. Um, for me, um, contemplative practices uh, primarily help us to uh, foster interconnectedness. Um, when I say interconnectedness, I also talk to my students about 
three different kinds of interconnectedness. <clears throat> At one level, what we already call the intersectional interconnectedness, that is, try to connect our own emotions and feelings and thoughts. So the contemplative part helps us to ground and use the grounding to foster intersectional interconnectedness. That is, how to connect to people who are very different from us and how to think about this. Like Rhonda said, compassion practices are very central to relate to other people and how to use our own practices to really understand who we are, then use that understanding to connect to other people who are different from us. At the third level, use that to what I call the ecological interconnectedness, that is how to connect to the larger world, uh, connection to the nature and globalization and the suffering around the world, consciously or unconsciously caused by us. Um, so in a way, contemplative practice really help us to connect. That's uh, my primary way of thinking about this. Um, both my teaching and practices, I would like to emphasize students to learn how to think about um, these practices, meditation or journaling, or a range of practices we can engage that will help us to, um, to connect at the intersectional and the intersectional and ecological level. That way, the whole practice is about um, grounding us to our own life in a deeper, in an engaged way um, that, is, that helps us to lead a meaningful life. Brad, um, before I move on to Mirabai, can I ask you to clarify the difference between the first level of interconnectedness, intersectional, and the second one? First, first is intersectional, that is awareness yeah. of your own emotions, between intersectional and intersectional. Right. Okay. Right. The first one is intrasectional. Yeah, inter it's our, my own emotion. That's what um, our meditation, concentration meditation, our emotion meditation. We try to connect to our own emotions, what we feel, and how to stay with the emotions. That's why I call the intersectional interconnectedness. Then there is intersectional interconnectedness that helps us to connect to other people, self, other, and the larger world. One way to so, so uh, self, other, and the environment. Right, correct. The greater, greater environment. Correct. Together. Uh, Mirabai? Hi, and um, hello to everybody out there who's listening. I'm so, I'm inspired for however many of you have tuned in, because I think this is such an important conversation, not just among the three of us, but, you know, nationally and internationally right now. So I would, I just would um, review what we all know, anybody who's read Mindful Magazine, that the that mindfulness allows us to see things as they are, which of course is we need to do before we can think about, you know, making change in ourselves or in our environment and culture. Um, to let go of judgment, meaning um, prejudgment mainly, uh, not letting go of wise discernment, but the prejudgments that we bring to uh, situations, which has a lot to do with, um, with racism and justice. Um, it helps us listen more deeply, clearly, um, so that we can really hear what the other person is saying, um, instead, of, uh, instead of with prejudgment, assuming we know ahead of time. 
it cultivates um, humility. Um, because as you watch your own mind, I, I don't see any other response besides humor and humility. Uh, I mean, there, <laughs> at, when we see our minds racing all over the places and, and the kinds of things that we come up with that uh, need care and um, attention. Uh, and then, uh, as um, Ram was just saying, interconnection, our interconnection with, with others. I, um, more and more now, I teach a practice, it's a mindful practice called Just Like Me. It's a compassion practice, practice in which you stand across from someone, uh, usually, uh, as I teach, it's usually someone you don't know. And um, then I guide it through phrases in which you discover that this person has suffered just like me. This person wants to be happy just like me. You know, this person has been um, physically hurt in her life just like me and so on. And after about 10 minutes of that, of looking at the other person who you don't know and remembering, realizing, imagining that um, the ways in which you are the same has this profound uh, impact on people. And um, that is so much at the heart of what we're talking about, this, the getting beyond this othering of others. Um, and then last, yeah, impermanence. Uh, mindfulness really leads us to recognize as we watch our minds and we watch the sensations in our body, we, um, we see how that everything is impermanence, all changing all the time, which I consider very motivating because that means that the places where we're stuck, we can change, we will change, and we can help ourselves change in a positive way. And I, I just wanted to say one thing uh, in response to what Ram was saying about nature. Um, I just read this really great book called Spying on the South. And in it, uh, the writer um, uh, does, he traces a journey that uh, Fre uh, Frederick Law Olmsted did in his life uh, in, the, in the Southern United States. It was before the Civil War. He wanted to see what was, he was a Northerner, so he wanted to really find out how people were thinking there. And so he took these journeys through the South and he saw that, um, he saw the incredible differences when it came to ways of thinking and holding on to beliefs. Uh, and he saw that the Civil War was inevitable. but. What he got out of that, he later became the architect, the landscape architect of Central Park, of um, many, many of the great green parks in our major cities, also Smith College. Um, and, but he did that not just because he thought it was pretty, but he thought that he saw that as different as people's ideas were about um, race and the country, that everybody seemed to uh, love being in nature. And that he thought if he could get different kinds of people in cities in nature together, it would go a long way toward them appreciating and being able to hear each other. So 
Just a thought. Well, that's 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 a beautiful thing, and um, you know, it's also ironic that you know some of those spaces have indeed become spaces that are paved over, <laughs> paved over, or the privileged spaces where where not everybody feels that they can can be there together. Um, and I think that that leads me to my next question, which is about the fact that each of you host rooms in containers, you might say, where people come together who have, uh, you know, all sorts of differences. And, you know, in those rooms, you can, as we say, uh, hold the space where um, people can connect with uh, their triggers and their reactivity, as Rhonda was talking about, and connect with a number of other things. Um, in the presence of, of other people, um, now, you know, Robin D'Angelo, whose best-selling book on white fragility um, recently came out a while back, and, you know, she, she hosted a lot of spaces, but she encountered a great deal of fragility, you know, a, a fear and resistance to, to uh, encountering these topics, um, and... I was wondering uh, how much of an obstacle is fragility in those in the rooms that you've been hosting, and and how do you uh, relate to it? And maybe we can start with Ram. Um, hi, Barry. This is a very important question. Um, uh, I used to be a civil engineer. I used to design buildings, and uh, before oh. I became a psychologist. And one of my projects was we have to design foundations, which is uh, one of our uh, core uh, training to learn foundation engineering. Um, I use the word, uh, metaphor from my former life when I teach about fragility. So fragility is about our inability to stay with discomfort. So um, when we design a foundation, uh, when there is quicksand or when the surface is so soft, we have to add some piles to strengthen the base before we lay the foundation, before we build the superstructure. So contemplative practices are more like the pile foundation where we have a well, quicksand is all the uh, history we carry with us. Sometimes we don't engage with them. So the pile foundation provides the support. So the contemplative practices anchor us in looking at our discomfort in an honest way. And that's, uh, that's one way I start. So that uh, instead of uh, focusing on the fragility, I also tell students, maybe you should start thinking about the how to strengthen to look at these questions. Um, as a male faculty member, um, I'm probably one of the few male faculty members, a uh, handful of them in women's studies department. <laughs> that is a very, I always tell them, it's a very interesting experience to sit and listen to all my colleagues work and we discuss about gender. Um, so there is a lot of discomfort being a male because most of the work focuses on patriarchy right uh, and male privilege and so i really say how i have to learn to stay with with the space to be uh, to listen deep listening that uh, um mirabai was talking about um so in a way it is like a quick quicksand once we use the quicksand metaphor the fluidity of uh, some of the basis assumptions we have how that is preventing us from um fully developing uh, uh, capacity to stay with the discomfort. 
So that really resonates with students. Students really uh, learn it in a different way. All of a sudden, they really think about, oh, this is going to strengthen the way how I think about it. So contemplative practices also help them to think how they're going to engage with this question. Um, so I use this metaphor to talk about fragility. It's, it's a way to engage with uh, discomfort in a productive and meaningful way. So Rhonda, in, in your book, um, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, you give um, lots of great examples from the rooms that you're hosting and have been for years at, at law school. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the trenches, as it were, and uh, how you relate to the to to fragility and discomfort, allow, holding the space as part, part of, you know, the idea is to leave that discomfort there without papering over it. So uh, what, what do you think? Well, yes, it is. It is. Um, it's important. It's a very important topic. And it's something that I have experienced um, quite a lot. I just think that when we think about fragility, we are, you know, again, we benefit from our own practices, the practices that we engage in that help us um, apprehend what's, what is real, uh, what is, you know, what there is to be seen, what there is to be known, but do, to do so with some compassion. So if we recognize that fragility is, is as um, D'Angelo and others have, have described it, is a kind of stress reaction. You know, it is a kind of, um, somewhat predictable uh, consequence of our, you know, typical ways of dealing with or not dealing with these particular social dynamics. So what I mean here is, you know, we may be more or less protected, depending on our, um, our own experience and our own identity, from conversations about race. And so even more specifically, whites in particular, as Robin D'Angelo and others who've really looked at white privilege. And again, this is just one form of privilege. There are other kinds of privileges. It varies, as we know, quite a bit, depending on the context. Um, but if we look at the situation in, in the United States today, um, where white racialized people continue to, to find themselves often in majority situations or in situations where if they choose, they can avoid um, regular confrontation with uh, the perspectives of people of color. That provides a kind of training, if you will, in avoidance, in being much more comfortable not talking about these issues, and so on and so forth. And so I think when we talk about fragility, when we recognize that what we're talking about is a specific kind of stress reaction, a specific kind of, you might say, socially constructed suffering, then our uh, you know, our mindfulness and compassion practices can really assist us. You know, so from what I've seen a lot in my efforts to create spaces where these kinds of conversations can happen is, you know, on the one hand, it's very important uh, to, to sort of name and, and identify who is present and, and really sort of take into consideration the particular context. So for me, context is so important to everything we're talking about. Um, in terms of a practical way of thinking about this, it's always very important to start there. 
who is in this room? Um, what are the kinds of kind of uh, ways in which the particular um, identities and the particular uh, levels of comfort uh, that the, the people in this conversation have relative to each other, how might we sort of be more or less um, likely to find ourselves um, in feeling less comfortable. And so again, when we're in mixed company and we're, we're with people that we don't know, um, you know, trust is a big deal. And the lack of trust is often really running through the spaces. So a big part of what I think those of us, I can speak for myself as a person who tries to create spaces where these conversations can happen, a big part of what is front and center for me at the foundation of the work uh, are a set of practices that help facilitate the building of some level of trust. And so while some of those practices are these intrapersonal practices of the sort that Ram and Mirabai have been talking about, practices that support us in building our own foundation, a kind of stronger base, a higher degree of stamina for withstanding um, the, you know, the, the, the shifting dynamics of, of any, a particular interaction or set of interactions. Uh, the, the intrapersonal practices are one um, level of support, but everything that we do to help facilitate the sense that this is a trustworthy space these are very subtle things from, you know, greeting people as they enter in ways that um, make as real as possible the compassion we have the, the, in our hearts, the recognition that um, we are bringing to meeting each person as a person who matters, whose perspective is valued. Um, and so there are, there's, I talk in the book about a variety of different ways that, um, that I think facilitators of conversations or those of us who happen to be in a conversation where these topics arise, um, we wanna bring more of a contemplative approach in to support us. Um, the, the kind of, the moving from the sort of specific inter, intrapersonal or personal practices that ground us and from there kind of being mindful of these context and environmental factors, these very different ways that we might uh, engage interpersonally and establish a space that supports trust building um, also are, 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 you know, part of what I think we really need to focus on. So whether or not we choosing mindfully, how do we sit together? Um, how do we literally, um, you know, do we use a circle format so that we can see each other's faces while we're having this difficult conversation? Um, a lot of research suggests that be, you know, that simple, uh, traditional, right, um, long human, uh, that, that, that format that has a deep history in, in human connection spaces of just sitting in a circle so that you can see each other's faces um, that is really can be a, a, a kind of a you know a simple but but important and profound support for having these kinds of difficult conversations um, uh, make make being explicit about uh, some of the um, agreements or expectations or some of the ways that you uh, that we might um, together create a space or co-creates a space where we can connect um, with more um, 
uh, intentionality, but also uh, openness and 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 willingness to give uh, people the the room to 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 sort of find their way into the conversation. So there are many different ways. I would say, um, I think just bringing awareness to the the challenges that are inherent when we come together, uh, the the tendency or the the likelihood that there might be fragility and the need therefore to, to, to engage in ways of having a foundation that supports us and structuring the environment in ways, the rooms that we enter into um, in, and the way that we communicate in ways that support us. Those are just some of the things that I think have seemed to be important for me in the work that I've done uh, to help uh, engage across okay. different well, thanks, thanks, Rhonda. That's that's beautiful. Um, nearby, do you want to say anything about? Um, yeah, there's so much. I'm afraid to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, first, I I want to say that um, if you haven't already guessed from my um, voice that I'm white, but I wanted to uh, I want to quickly say that um, learning about learning about how to create these spaces. It's a journey. I love that Rhonda said you start by welcoming people to it. Well, of course, she knows you start before that when you're doing the planning. But I just, you know, noticing those things that are often invisible, you know, this, the shape of the space, you know, welcoming and so on. And at the Center for Contemplative Mind, we, for years, what we did was introduce these practices to um, secular settings in, in American life. And so that meant all different kinds of people. Um, and we had to pay attention in a to the differences of each group. But I remember back to the very first thing we did, which was um, uh, we wanted to, for this is like in 1990, and uh, a group of us who had formed Save a Foundation were activists and we also all had spiritual practice. And we recognized the way in which those two really informed the work that we were doing and helped us uh, to be as successful as we were. Um, and so we wanted to kind of spread that. And we very naively decided, okay, well, let's have a retreat for social activists, we said. And everybody in this, in this initial group were all white. And we all, many of us had studied in Asia, in monasteries, and learned these practices that were developed for monks. Um, and, and we were still doing them, but we said, okay, well, ha let's have a retreat for activists, and we'll teach these practices. Well, it's a long story, but um, uh, so we, 100 activists, many of whom came from New York City, more than half were people of color. The issues at the time were housing and homelessness um, and AIDS and the first Gulf War. Um, anyhow, all these folks came together, and on the first two nights, we had uh, the teacher of the meditation practice all day long was a white male and on the first two nights we had two great white men but <laughs> uh, talk about spirituality basically and activism uh, and so by the third day there was a revolution and um, you know pe many people of color said this is not what I expected 
uh, and then identified all the ways in which they felt alienated from it. Um, and we then sat, we had this brilliant facilitator, and we then sat in one circle for like four days and listened to each other. And I'm telling the story because one of the, um, some, some of the things, for instance, I remember um, an African-American woman saying, I can't do this practice. I can't be silent until I've been heard. But that was so important. That had never occurred to us. Um, and um, many other uh, kind of like things that have been totally invisible to the planners um, uh, emerged. And um, the planning, in fact, I wanted to say about any creating any space is, you know, who's at the table planning, but also not only who's at the table, but as we now say, who owns the table. Um, that planning from the beginning has to incorporate, leadership has to incorporate many voices if that's the, if, if this is the uh, work that you want to be doing. Um, but what happened in that circle was really amazing, was that those, um, you know, so many people had been to so many political and social justice meetings where there's, you know, there's so much anger um, coming out of injustice. And, but in fact, what happened at this meeting was that um, the, those folks who had planned it, they really understood about listening, about they'd done a lot of mindfulness practice. They, they understood about listening. They understood that, oh yeah, we could have been wrong. We could have been really wrong about this. And they listened, and then together we um, created a whole uh, different way of being together. And I'll say one more thing about fragility, that, um, uh, that well, that in her book, um, A White Fragility, Robin DiAngelo lists a, uh, some ways in which white people respond. And... Um, they were, they're so interesting. As I read through it, I start, I, she, she makes them, she puts them in two categories. One she calls us colorblind people who say, oh, I just don't see race. Um, and, and, and variations on that. You know, everyone struggles. But if you work hard in America, you can make it. Uh, ignoring structural um, issues. But um, the second group was called Color Celebrate. And I learned a lot from this. Um, People say, well, I'm not racist. I work in a very diverse environment. I have uh, people of color in my family. I, I like this one, Rhonda. I used to live in Hawaii or New York um, and, and so on. Um, and I went through that and I realized that those arise in me um, at times like that. And you can learn from whatever is arising in you, challenge it, question it. And, um, and but also, then I realized that those uh, there there's research showing that in fact there is there's benefit to these. So they shouldn't just be written off when you. But working in a diverse environment, be, being you know putting yourself in situations with people unlike you, uh, creating community with with people who are not like you. Um, uh, 
living in places where you are a minority, all of those things uh, really do help, but you still have to keep, you still have to keep challenging your assumptions for, um, for your invisible biases. Okay, I won't talk so much anymore. So, <laughs> no, that's great. That was a good, good story uh, nearby. And um, I want to pivot now to um, exploring some words that create uh, challenges for people. Uh, we've already batted around fragility. Um, Let's talk about privilege a little bit. So this is a word that uh, causes confusion for a lot of people, as we know. They may say, wait, I'm not more privileged than that tenured professor who's lecturing me about privilege. Mm-hmm. And the Indian equity activist, uh, Malika Dutt, has talked about, as have many others, how one aspect of intersectionality is that we're all made up of intersecting lines of privilege and oppression. Uh, In the West, uh, Malika is stereotyped as an exotic Asian woman and has to live under that constraint or even oppression. In India, she's seen as a Brahmin, so she enjoys a fair amount of privilege, even though her gender causes discrimination there as well. So, wow, it's complicated. And uh, how do we help people sort through something this complicated in a creative, helpful way? Um, Ram? Sure. Um, so it's interesting. Um, you cited uh, Malika. That's uh, quote. Um, I'm come from uh, uh, south. I'm uh, I'm not a. Uh, I'm coming from one of the backward communities. First generation went to college. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's an interesting um, uh, dilemma. How to think about this question of privilege? The way I handle it is I talk about uh, what I call situated intersectional awareness. And awareness that uh, how who you are in different contexts differs by a whole set of factors. Uh, I give three examples to my students. All uh, all of them are from my own uh, life experience. One is um, when I was a grad student, I used to work very late with one of my female colleagues. Um, we'll work till midnight, past midnight. Then she will ask me to drop her off to the uh, parking garage because it's middle of the night. So, so I will walk her from the department building to the walking gar- the parking garage. Um, so the irony is she has a fifth degree black belt. So if anybody attacks her, she's the one going to defend me, not me defending her. <laughs> her point is that you have a male privilege because I'm actually preventing something happen like this. So I don't have to use my, uh, my skills. So you are more like a preventive measure. You're walking with me. Um, so I tell students, you know, this is, I didn't realize I can walk in the middle of the night, 12 o'clock by myself. How that privilege, I didn't think about that question. Um, uh, I took African-American students um, to India to meet with Dalit activists uh, about 10 years ago um, to talk about race and gender at the intersection of caste, uh, um, race and class. Well, let me stop you there a second. I just want to, so you're talking about the Dalits, the um, so-called untouchable class. That's correct. That's correct. That's yes. correct. Dalits were treated as untouchables before. Uh, it's illegal to do that now. But still, there's a lot of discrimination. Um, so at the end of the session, the Dalit activists asked students, uh, they really exchange their life stories. That's the intervention 
pedagogical intervention we were talking about to foster compassion and deep listening. Um, so end of the session, uh, the Dalit activist asked the student, oh, as the, you are uh, very marginalized within the US context when it comes to race, but you also come from the most privileged location uh, when it comes to globally speaking, where US stands. Um, so what is your responsibility as a leader uh, of people who are marginalized across the world? So what kind of responsibility do you have? So that was a very profound question because the African-American students never thought about their role, their even location as something to do with leadership, the way they, uh, the Dalit activists framed their experience. So that really have profound influence on the student. One of the students, she went back, she learned Tamil, she went back to India. She worked for five years, she just got back from India. Um, so in a way, uh, that intersection, how to understand your own privilege as an American for, a, for being African-American in a global context is a very different experience than being African-American in the US and how they have to navigate these uh, challenges. That was very useful to them. And so my third example is always um, about um, when I was teaching um, domestic uh, workers who are doing a cleaning, I talk about cleaning industry uh, and how um, immigrants and working class women do the cleaning. So we had a long discussion, we had a reading, two women are supposed to lead the discussion what I didn't realize was I didn't pay, I didn't know before they talked about. So one woman is actually a daughter of a cleaning lady. She actually cleaned houses with her mom. The other person used to have a live-in nanny when she grew up um, in Upper West Side. Wow. So both are white. <laughs> so they really talked about being white and how different intersections of class and privilege operates. Um, there is always a lot of resistance when you think of privilege, uh, what privilege means like the way you asked. We talk about uh, implicit bias. There is a kind of response. When we talk about privilege, it is a different kind of response. So one of the creative response I, uh, I use in my class is I introduce the concept of negative capability. Keats uh, wrote about this, the poet. The idea that as an artist, you have to stay with something uh, if you're pursuing truth. Uh, if the truth has a darker side, you have to, uh, you have to pursue it with care and compassion, without uh, suppressing or flinching, uh, or shying away from truth. So how you have to stay with that capacity to stay with this truth that is uncomfortable to us, which is called negative capability. So all artists have to have negative capability. That's his point. So I always tell students, when you, um, when it is like, think of yourself as you're doing, a, if you're a method actor, you're going to play a role it's always easy to play a role of Robin Hood or a prince because it's easier princess because they're <laughs> likable characters. Everybody likes to play a prince or princess or Robin Hood. But if you're going to play a child molester, that's the main film, or somebody who is a pedophile uh, or a serial killer. So if you are a great actor, you have to have a lot of compassion for that role. So you're going to bring... Uh, so what I call negative capability is the sublime form of compassion, where you have a lot of care, so you get to understand the character, so you bring some humanity to the character. That's what they do. So whenever you, we talk about privilege, we try to humanize we, who we are. So when I say uh, privilege awareness, that is a way of humanizing who we are to connect, to understand. So that's, you should think of Robert De Niro or, or, or um, 
you know, any great uh, model brand or any actors, they bring a lot of humanity to the role play. That's why we remember them. So it is, think of it as a process by which we become more human. I think that is, so in a way, I really talk about the context, the situated intersectional awareness to understand who we are, um, um, to have an awareness of your various identities we have, context plays a role, how we think about our identity or how we use our identity to connect or disconnect from people and what are the ways, the practices um, in which our identities are also embedded. Sometimes we don't pay attention to this. Like Rhonda said, saying hello in a group meeting always makes the difference for a for an ethnic minority or a person who is a minority in the particular context. So it is a set of practices. It's an awareness. It's also a combination of our awareness about your privileges and marginalities and how to use it to connect, how to humanize our own experience and how to be authentic in connecting to other people. So that's why I, I creatively frame it. I use negative capability to engage with this conversation. Yeah, I think that uh, that idea of negative capability, capability to work within negativity is uh, um, a wonderful comment on uh, fragility, which... Uh, and awkwardness and, you know, which, you know, Rhonda described fragility as a, a stress response. Right. Um, and, you know, if you were talking about uh, method acting, you know, I, I was thinking of um, and bringing humanity right. to roles. I was thinking of two roles that Denzel Washington played, the, the right. husband and father in Fences. The yes, fences and... Uh, Yep. And also the training day. Training day is another great example. Training day, he plays a criminal, and right. Malcolm X, he plays a, you right. know, each of them right. has the tremendous uh, humanity, but they Absolutely. all are heroic and flawed right. in various ways. And, you know, it's, um, you know, in a way, uh, in a way that's, um, you know, it's about entering into our feelings in a deep way. Rhonda, do you have any comments on the on this on this issue generally? Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's I love this uh, the, the conversation as it's flowing, and um, you know, I guess I, the one thing that comes up for me is I think about uh, you know the challenges of raising our capacity to bring awareness to this aspect of our experience that we we are pointing to by use of the word privilege. I think the, the the piece that I haven't heard raised, and I'll just add here, is that um, when we say that privileges vary in context, um, what we might add to that to help us understand why, and again, what it is that we're talking about, is is that privilege is related to differentials in terms of power and access. And so, I mean, this this privilege is um, really a way of pointing to. Uh, structural uh, circumstances uh, in our context, in our communities, in our institutions, our schools, our workplaces, um, in our cultures uh, that that have enabled certain um, members of certain groups to accrue certain kinds of powers, accesses, opportunities, um, sense of um, normalcy or, or, um, uh, or, or welcome in places, in certain places, vis-a-vis -vis or relative to others who have had the opposite, you know, who are um, 
uh, arrayed along this line of privilege, um, if you will, in, in, in counterpoint to those who are esteemed. And so everywhere that you have some group that has experienced more access, more um, opportunity, power, in this way that we want, we're calling privilege, there is a, you know, a corresponding countervailing array of different identities and groups who have experienced less of those different um, uh, resources uh, and so on because of their um, identity-based associations in the context, in the culture, in the place. So we've had examples where we've looked at how gender can be privileging and class, how the intersections of gender and, 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 and class and race or cultural um, specifics, culturally specific um, uh, uh, statuses, like we saw, we look at, we see when we look at um, the, the context of India. I mean, there are all, there's so many complications that it's, it's really, really quite interesting. And so on the one hand, yes, it is it, uh, in an identity sense. If we're just talking about privileges and aspects of identity and an aspect of how we hold the experience of being human, yes, it's about humanizing us, opening our eyes to the, the diverse diversities uh, that are in all of us. But on the other hand, I think if we don't, also add to the conversation that we're we have these different degrees of privilege because of um, the context within which we live and the power differentials that have been associated with different identities therein therein lies i think the rub it's hard for us to have conversations about power in mixed company uh, i mean we're in, especially in the u.s i think um, we aren't particularly well trained to really um, dive deeply into, um, you know, the ethics, if you will, or the um, the sort of moral conversation, the moral imagination that might be brought to bear uh, when we think about fairness and um, equitable distribution of power. And so, privilege, you know. Yes, it can get us really more richly sitting in the space of our humanity and all that comes up with that, with, as, as Mirabai pointed out, if we can do that with humility and humor, you know, that's um, really the great gift of grace that can, that can um, come from our contemplative practice, that we just take it all with a little bit more lightness. But I think there's another piece of it that I, that the part that's most challenging is that it's a political conversation. Suddenly we are now talking about, you know, the, the sort of um, the just and unjust distribution of resources and access. And that's where it gets difficult, Barry, I think, for most people. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, 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 I thought what you said was very uh, powerful, which is that, you know, we're not used to talking about power uh, and uh, in mixed spaces and mixed company and it's uh you know it gets to the heart of of, of a lot of matters you know it's sort of right. the, it's the central political yeah. issue of life Access i'm not even sure we're access. used to talking about it very very much in our own like on our own like i i found myself i know I, i'm thinking about my own life and um you know as an, a woman of color african-american woman born in um in the southern united states I grew up really 
on the one hand, very aware of the way that um, as a black woman, there were certain things that were not expected of me, certain opportunities that had traditionally not been made available for people like me. And I came, fortunately was born into what I call the integration generation, that period of time where we were actively trying to uh, address some of these inequities. And so I had some opportunities that my you know, women like me and my family didn't have, my mother and my grandmother had not had, to go to college, to become a law professor, et cetera. Um, these things didn't just happen, um, you know, right? There were deep political, uh, social movements that made these things um, possible. Uh, and yet, you know, as a woman in the American, you know, late 20th century context, I had embedded in me strong feelings about, or strong trainings about what uh, success should look like. That included being a mother. That included being uh, married. Um, and so when I found myself um, not able to fulfill uh, those particular expectations, I was married and then divorced, I tried to have kids and I couldn't have them. All of a sudden I started having these conversations with myself about like, what, what does it mean to 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 be in this you know to 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 have a sense of my my own experience as as a valid one given all the dimensions right that dimension of being a woman of being a black person um being now having moved from very low class to upper class right from being a poor black woman in segregated north carolina to being a law professor in san francisco so there were um, a lot of different moments for me of just like having to look at where do i have power where, where where don't i and what is my relationship to this idea of power because i knew as a law professor i certainly had more power than my grandmother who cleaned houses for a living had, but I also had some ambivalence about power. And so I think that, you know, when I think about the challenges, I realize the challenges are intrapersonal, right? Many of us have not really uncovered how we have ambivalence or what our relationship is to the idea of our own personal power, but also we're not as well versed in really analyzing how our sense of uh, power and, and, and what power means is constructed by our social and political location and, and our sense of what, um, you know, what ethical responsibilities inhere in our positions in the world. Well, that's great, uh, Rhonda. You know, wow. seems like there's, uh, um, there's lots of awkwardness and fragility for human beings to go around. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I want to pivot to another uh, topic area. All of you are very skilled, and that's why, why I've called on you one of the reasons. You're all very skilled at unpacking the nuances and meanings and dimensions of these different, very powerful concepts we use. And, um, you know, one of the classical definitions of meditative awareness in, includes the assertion that a deeper awareness of what's going on, as you said, Ron, an embodied awareness, uh, allows us to better apprehend how words and language actually work, mm. that meanings are fluid and contextual. And for one person in one instance, you know, a word might shed light. Whereas uh, in another context, it, it might create confusion to them or harm or division. 
for example, the word racist now is 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 the dimensions of its meaning now in the, in the, in public discussion. It covers a much broader range. You know, it, it, a lot of people still think of you know if, if you say somebody's racist, they're just talking about the personal intentions in your mind. Whereas it might now refer to uh, you know, systemic context that you may uh, implicitly be participating in. This can be a very challenging concept for people to get to without some unpacking. Um, so, uh, you know, what can we offer from the contemplative realm in terms of, um, you know, how, to, how we can use words that spread more light uh, than harm? And maybe we haven't heard from you in a while, Mirabai, why, why don't we start with you? Well, it's, I mean, it's a great area to bring mindfulness to. Um, and it's true. Uh, you know, single words can uh, trigger all kinds of responses and mean th different things to different people. Um, I was just reading this morning something oh, about a minister who was, uh, the Presbyterian minister was taking on... Um, uh, the issue of uh, gun violence and um, and gun regulation, and she said something that I never like quite um, got before in the same way that she said when you say gun that people who have guns it goes immediately to their sense of um, identity and of their um, to the amygdala, which generates a feeling of fear. The idea of taking their guns away has to do with something very primal, where they think that for them it means defending themselves and otherwise they would be very vulnerable. I somehow in her just saying that, it, um, I, I saw it in a very more personal human way than I had before. So of course it's the same with, um, all these words around privilege and fragility and racism, and they all can, you know, trigger all these responses um, in people. And I think that um, uh, mindfulness gives us the skill to listen for those responses, to think ahead of time about how people might respond to different words, uh, to then in the moment, um, as Rhonda started with the importance of embodying these practices, in the moment, uh, getting in touch with what's being triggered in you by the, um, the sensations within your body. And then, you know, breathing, and then, you know, maybe shifting and changing, always trying to remember the ways in which we are humans here together. And, um, people defend themselves when they think they're being attacked. And so it's really important to find that, um, that common space so that, um, so that you can hear and so that other people can be heard. And just recognizing in different, different um, kind of subcultures and spaces in this country, people use language in different ways. And, um, we were talking about yesterday about how when we were at the Center for Contemplative Mind, when we were trying to uh, create 
a welcoming environment for people from many different professions, uh, each with others of common interests, uh, how we would be teaching the same practices and creating the same kind of space, but we would use different languages, different language, different words in different settings. And um, I, um, and I, there are lots of examples, but I do remember <laughs> for you, Rhonda, uh, how there was a, we were teaching and one group of judges asked us to do a special workshop for them in which mm -hmm. they could learn to be non-judgmental. <laughs> so um, it's really important to listen to the words. And we all, you know, I, I, I had a PhD in literature and I still, you know, I use wrong words in lots of settings. But recovery, you know, being aware of what had been invisible listening to your own words and then recovering with um you know with humility and dignity that's beautiful ron um i think it's always um, a difficult conversation with students when we have to think about uh, these questions um uh, i think uh, like ronda said i uh, it's important to talk about the structural issues which i spend a lot of time talking about um Intersectional awareness is not just a individual awareness. It's also how social structures play a role and how to think about these structural disparities and inequalities which create this uh, um, privilege, uh, accumulation of privilege and, at, and unequally, it's also unequally distributed. Um, I think that's the kind of question, how to use this language to talk about it. I, I, um, I focus uh, in my work when I talk about mindfulness. So one of the things is I focus on dignity. Um, so I really uh, emphasize, uh, emphasize the importance of dignity uh, um, in leading a life. And a, a mindful life is how you treat uh, yourself with dignity and others and how to really make sure that uh, the dignity practices uh, around you are consistent with the values you have. Um, I think that's really having a conversation about these questions. Um, and of course, uh, there are a lot of times you, uh, like uh, Mirabai said, you make mistakes, uh, you, what kind of language you're gonna use, how to use, um, how to think about this question itself. Um, it's it's uh, setting up some deep listening tools in the beginning of the uh, course or class to session to talk about these questions help a little bit, but still there's a lot of work we have to do. How to, um, you know, there's a lot of difficulties in this culture to talk about social class itself. So everybody thinks they are middle class, which I was amused when it came to the US when I first saw that. Um, whereas class is so pronounced in India, where I came from, as uh, the first gen went to college. Um, so I think it's having this, uh, you know, um, how to, one of the exercises I do is um, ask them to look at one of the, uh, whatever they're wearing um, that day and look at where it was made. And they track uh, the, um, how it, it was made in Bangladesh. Usually it is made in Bangladesh or, or India or Sri Lanka. Then they, from there, how it was, came to Ann Arbor. They track the history of the object. Uh, and they also look at how different things, they do research on the product itself. They read a paper on that. So they realize how um, corporations are involved, whether there is any child labor, um, uh, sweat labor, all kind of sweatshop labor, um, and who is distributing. And they really create an awareness how a simple thing they are wearing has so much social information 
they are not uh, paying attention to um and how they also benefit from that uh, you know uh, from that how to think about the benefits that are accumulating over time and in a way to use it to talk about solidarity and deep listening um it's always uh, a challenging conversation it was not always easy but uh with the mindfulness training and skills we we set the stage in the beginning of the conversation itself that it is very important to have this conversation um like randa said uh we are not trained to talk about these questions in a social setting it always <laughs> lead to the conversation always go in a direction you don't want to go usually um and that's always a challenge how to navigate this um yeah it's 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 a continuous uh, ongoing engagement how to preserve your own dignity and to recognize the dignity of the others and uh, and how to sustain uh, a culture of dignity around us that preserve the dignity of the human beings and that's really for me that is what being mindful is about and that's how um, i see it and that's a message i try to convey to my students so um you know, we've all talked in various ways about as i've been calling it, hosting the uh, conversation hosting the uh, you know mindful dialogue uh for students uh in many cases uh but also for people who who would do various kinds of uh practice programs i know particularly ronda you've done that and mirabai um i've done that kind of thing so when we have people in a container like that let's say for a day a couple of days or an ongoing course you know people can we find get in touch with their dignity and, and these you know and and by sticking with the awkwardness and the pain and the fragility you know there's a journey begins to happen but then folks are let loose into the world at large um where they're operating outside of those kind of context and um you know things uh that you know if you're able to discuss something within that kind of protected space one kind of thing can happen but somebody walks out of one of these classrooms and turns to somebody and says you know check your privilege and before you know it they they're in a harsh uh fight with the person um you know that or you know something in writing where there's not a dialogue there can be um much more polarity and duality than you can foster in the kind of spaces you're talking about so ronda what can you say about that bridge between a safe protected space where creative things can happen and the big old world where things get you know much trickier hmm right um <laughs> it's challenging as we've said um i think Wow, there's so many different things that are coming up for me. You know, I th I think uh fundamentally for me contemplative practice is about constantly waking up to the thing uh that in this moment is most difficult for us to to see and then um you know figuring out a way to relate to what we're seeing with more heart um more compassion more dignity more humility um and that that means that you know with regard to these challenges that come up around moving from safer spaces to to the broader uh uh the broader world 
you know, as a person who is grounding oneself or myself, when I try and ground myself in my own practice, you know, I'm just aware that language is always fraught, you know, I mean, it, it kind of, uh, especially as a lawyer, Mirabai's a literature professor, all of us, you know, we have these different trainings around using words. Um, but I think these contemplative practices help us hold all of experience a little bit more lightly, and they kind of trouble some of the professionalizations and trainings that we have about how we have to use words or how as you know advocates we need to frame a conversation. We get these trainings and we have these tools and then we hold them with contemplative, for me, I hold these things with a kind of a contemplative awareness and it, it constantly pushes me against or away from being too tight with, you know, my expectations about how things should be or what, you know, how someone should say something. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, having the bringing together the kind of world and training around social justice on the one hand with the world and training around contemplation on the other, that's right where I've been sitting for many years. And, um, and so my own experience has been one that's really been about just recognizing um, the illusory nature of so many of the different things that that really make us crazy. <laughs> and as, as Mirabai was saying, you know, when we look at the thoughts and the way we hold them and the reactions and the way we posture, again, we've been trained in our professional, our educational, our institutional settings to kind of be in conversations in a certain kind of way. And, you know, we sort of have to continue to manifest our do that to, to be able to stay in these places and make a living. But on the other hand, um, you know, contemplative awareness is kind of a constant reminder that words can never adequately co convey what experience really is about. And so it, it really invites a kind of real, very nuanced um, appreciation for the difficulty of connecting. Sometimes I say to my students and folks in workshops, you know, we, we, make, we run the greatest risk when we are all speaking the same language. And so we assume that when I use the word love, you know, for example, or the word race or whatever it might be, we, you, everybody knows what I mean. In fact, we are also radically different in terms of how we think of any one thing. Um, I, I remember doing a raisin meditation, you know, the very simple, basic, traditional, often introduction to mindfulness through the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program course, where we just, you know, explore what it's like to experience this thing that we later identify as a raisin. Um, I, I like to give an exercise like that uh, often at the beginning of an engagement just to sort of surface how even some simple thing like a raisin, uh, which we all sort of know so well, um, we know it so differently. The associations people have with it, you know, just going around a simple circle of law students or any, you know, members of a workshop that I've done, they're so different that I, I use that as a reminder to, to, to all of us that we're each our own kind of world. And, um, you know, what I think mindfulness, and we, you know, we're each our kind of river, if you will, 
into what mindfulness can help us see as like an ocean of experience. And um, I'm thinking of a teaching from an Af South African uh, teacher I was privileged to work with a little bit earlier this year in South Africa, um, whose who's, who's basic teaching was for us was to be like the ocean that refuses no river. Mm. Right. So if the river of like somebody's using the word white supremacy and we're like, wait, I, you know, I don't, that's a word that triggers me. Mindful holding is an invitation to like, just again, notice, soften, open a doorway or kind of a, open a kind of a, an access through which can flow this river of someone trying to communicate about something uh, that at the, at the end of the day, as another human being, we just want to understand better. So I just think that there's a, it's just uh, these contemplative approaches open us up to being with reality in a way that can, can hold more nuance. And that, I think, is one of the greatest gifts of, of the work. So I think one of the things I'm hearing you say is uh, that, you know, uh, uh, I envision in that in that room, you know, where you're holding the space and challenging people to explore bias and how they respond to things and triggers. Uh, you know, there there may be a lot of intensity there. As you move out in the world, one needs to carry oneself a bit lightly, uh, mm -hmm. and that you know it's how you uh, you know part of contemplative practice is to explore deeply, but but also how to carry yourself mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, as you go about in the, in the world where, you know, we're all living different worlds. I think that's quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, Mirabai, do uh, you want to say anything on that? I think it, it helps. It, well, leaving, uh, leaving a class or a workshop, I always give them, uh, the participants, like, cautions about, you know, going home and trying to convert everybody in your family to whatever it is we've been talking about. Um, and also just that, um, that it's often more helpful to talk about your own experience and hope that the, some of the insights into the problems of, of um, you know, well, I'll just say racism for shorthand for the whole thing. Um, uh, to, especially for people who, you know, think it's not a problem. So um, uh, I think speaking from your own experience is often helpful. And then out of that, they can. Uh, so to say, I had this amazing experience in this workshop or class where I saw that I actually didn't didn't really think I was holding much privilege. But when I looked more deeply, I saw that, oh, yeah, even though I'm a woman and I feel like, you know, I'm disadvantaged by men getting all the jobs and getting higher pay and so on, uh, that actually I also have privilege because, you know, that whatever, I'm white, I'm educated. So um, I think that that's a helpful way. And, you know, there are people will often... Um, not hear you anyhow. 
and you just have to know that. The one thing about it is that for many people, it's invisible. That's the point. That's how they sustain, you know, white supremacy. It's, it's invisible. They don't see it. If, and if, if it were really revealed, um, many people, more people, would say, this is really unjust. We got to make some changes here. But, um, but it's pretty much invisible. And, and uh, people living inside, living largely with people like themselves, reinforce that. And mindfulness can really help us uh, bring, uh, bring it into visibility within ourselves, our own resistances to leaving suffering wherever it exists, but also it can lead us to um, uh, find ways to educate ourselves about what's going on. Well, we just have a little bit of time left, so I want to ask each of you, starting with Ram, if you have any last uh, thoughts you'd like to share, anything you didn't get a chance to say that you'd like to to share with, with uh, mindful readers about and uh, mindfulness practitioners about... Um, mindfulness and social justice and issues of race and privilege and divisiveness and unity and interconnectedness. Ram? Yes. Um, um, thank you for uh, inviting me for this uh, wonderful conversation. Um, I think my main uh, uh, message I try to communicate whenever I do workshops or teach is to... Um, convey the mindfulness is not just a self-enhancement tool. It's a way of living uh, with a strong ethical component. Um, I think it's important to realize um, our responsibilities, uh, our privileges, in a way we can um, lead a, a mindful life, which is, which is where dignity is very central to the way I think about uh, leading a mindful life. Uh, dignity of self, dignity of others, and dignity as a cultural practice around you. So I, I think it's important for us to uh, make us accountable. Um, so the social justice uh, research always uh, makes us to think and act in a way, are we uh, perpetuating inequalities, uh, how we deal with um, privilege uh, in our own life <clears throat> and in the way we practice it. So I think in a way, mindfulness, um, uh, social justice work really makes mindful researchers or practitioners to become more accountable to what they do, how we think about it. And I think that's one way to really engage, or the most important way to engage um, with the question, uh, why social justice matters for mindfulness communities, to the way we think about sexuality, race, uh, gender, class, you name any set of um, systemic inequalities perpetuated by identities and social, uh, um, social structures that perpetuate those um, inequalities. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Ram. Uh, so I flipped a, a three-sided coin to <laughs> the last word here, too. So Rhonda won. So Mirabai, do you have any last words to say before we give Rhonda the... Yeah, why it's important to understand issues around social justice. We live in a fragile democracy. We hope it's not too fragile, but we live in a democracy that says all beings are created equal. Didn't quite say it like that, but we believe that. And so it's important for everyone, for every one of us to um, 
cultivate compassion, to remember interconnectedness, to, um, you know, work to assure that um, we're not contributing to creating suffering for others and to relieve it where we can. It's important for our children and our grandchildren. Rhonda was saying this is a long-term proposition. Our children, our grandchildren, um, my, I have to say it. My granddaughter, Dahlia, said she was graduating from fourth grade the other day. And after it, we were sitting at a table and a boy ran by and she said, I don't like him. And I said, why not? And she said, he's mean to me. And I said, what, did, what does he say? What does he do? She said, he said that I had a fixed mindset. And I don't. <laughs> so the children and the grandchildren, she's nine. <laughs> and isn't that great? <laughs> and as, <laughs> Man, that, is a, that is a special kind of bully. Bullying sounds quite different today than it did when I was on the playground. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it never occurred to me when I was that age. <laughs> Well, even bullying has evolved. Yes. <laughs> Them's fighting words, boy. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, oh. you should probably end on that. I'm not going to. All right, over to okay. you. No, wait, I want to say one more thing. Oh. Okay. Children, grandchildren, and as Elijah Cummings says, those generations yet unborn. But my, you know, my hope is keep practicing, educate yourself about what you don't know. Maybe it's the systemic level of racism. Make friends different from yourself, build community, find areas where you can make positive change, large or small. Uh, do what you can, act and act with love. That's all. And if somebody accuses you of having a fixed mindset, look into it. Be compassionate. <laughs> Rhonda? Well, I agree very much with those sentiments that Mirabai uh, expressed there. I do think, um, as, as, and as, as Ron was saying, mindful living is about ethical living at its foundation. So it is about how we are uh, in the world with each other, um, what, you know, what awareness of interconnectedness suggests for how we might live better together. And so um, as, as Ram was mentioning the ways in which bringing a social justice awareness to mindfulness work can help us be more accountable in terms of this question of how we are and what we're doing with each other uh, with a view towards minimizing uh, social suffering. I would just, just highlight that this is also a conversation that those of us who enter through the doors of social justice uh, might hear, uh, in which we might hear a call for a more mindful contemplative way of being with that work. This is not about pacifying. This is not about um, being more accommodationist. It is a radical invitation to really bring a heartful um, capacity for, for 
complexity and nuance to how we do that work. Because we all know that um, it's challenging to, to stay on the front lines of the work of, of trying to make the world a better place. And we've all seen the ways that sometimes doing that work can also harden our hearts, can also you know, be held in such a way as to make it hard for us to connect with other people across what are you know, perceived or real differences. And so the temptation sometimes as a person who's really concerned about these issues might be to be, um, to be so focused on the injustices that we see and the way we think they need to be addressed that, um, that we ourselves can be doing some harm in those efforts. So I think just as we want to bring social justice more forthrightly into the conversation about mindfulness, I think we also want to bring mindfulness and contemplation in a huge, big way, as Mirabai suggested, more forthrightly into the work of social justice. Yep. Uh, that's beautifully said. Uh, I think it's been said before that, you know, in the mindfulness world, as you've been talking about, you know, accountability and in the mindfulness world, sometimes we practitioners, you know, when we think of something like bias and injustice and we think of our personal intentions and we think ourselves, you know, pretty, pretty broad-minded and understanding, and, but we may have an underappreciation for, uh, you know, deep systemic um, issues and deep systemic uh, uh, methods of, uh, of oppression and reducing access and power. And, um, you know, and as you were suggesting, you know, within equity work, where people understand that so deeply, they also might benefit from taking a pause to, to do those kind of practices that you were talking about. You know, it's a kind of a great marriage where, mm -hmm. You know, we have knowledge and insight and practice that we can that we can all benefit from from being together. And I and I hope that mindful. You know, we haven't exhausted this topic and these topics by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, we just want to keep returning to that well and be, being a participant and helping to host uh, these kinds of conversations and explorations and uh, you know whatever can be uh, helpful. So I want to thank you all. It's been a real pleasure. Um, Rhonda, Mirabai, and Ram, uh, mm. thank you for contributing to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very inviting us, and it was nice to be with you all. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for bringing this together and bringing it to everyone out there who's listening. Thank you for listening. Yes, thanks, everybody, for thanks your so time and, and caring in this conversation. Well, a great phrase to end on is, you are all welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
You can read more about the ideas we discussed here in the October issue of Mindful Magazine or on our website, mindful.org. We're curious to hear your take on this conversation. You can drop us a line at podcasts at mindful.org and find more of Barry Boyce on our website. Search his name in the search bar. You'll find audio practices, tons of stories, and all the other episodes of Point of View, and that is at mindful.org. I'm Stephanie Domet. Till next time, keep listening deeply.